Now, I'm going to wait until he tells us. The people on uh, Facebook will be live immediately. <clears throat> so we just got to wait. And then once YouTube is live, which he's got to do manually, then we'll get the class started. Big class today. Big class today. Live on what? Are we live on YouTube too? Oh, he's got it figured out. Good job. Okay, so uh, you can go ahead and start with whatever uh, psalm we're in. I think it's uh, 119, 133, if I remember. Uh, different over there. Uh, one, 119, 113 is where we're at. 113 yes. is Shemek. 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 I hate double-minded men, but I love your law. You were my refuge and my shield. I have put my hope in your word. Away from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commands of my God. Sustain me according to your promise, and I will live, and not let my hopes be dashed. Uphold me, and I will be delivered. I will always have regard for your decrees. You reject all who stray from your decrees, for there your deceitfulness is in vain. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your statutes. Flesh trembles in fear of you. I stand in awe. Okay, uh, we started a couple minutes early today because we've been having trouble with YouTube, and Sergio says he's got it figured out, so we may not have to do this anymore. But uh, we got a few prayer requests, few things to uh, somebody named Ernest. Ernest emailed me about the uh, thing I read last week on Gladys Allwood. Mm -hmm. um, okay. And I responded to his email, and Ernest, it bounced back to me. So I want you to know that what you sent, I appreciate it. And for some reason, I don't know if you typed in your email address wrong or not, but when it got to me, I hit reply, and I responded, and it bounced back. Um, secondly, let me get something really quickly here. Secondly, we have Jill in North Carolina emailed me today, and she got a spider bite. She thought she was having some problems with a sore calf because she's been working at some poles, I believe. And uh, anyway, it is less, but you always got to watch out when you get spider bites. And so she's a little concerned about that, and uh, so we want to have her in prayer about that. And then also, um, uh, I don't know if I can say the other thing, uh, but there's, you know, some issues at the polls that I can say that that have her kind of down if you can imagine um so we'll just leave it at that and we want to pray for her uh her be, a, being able to continue her work there without going you know pulling out all her hair or something um then we have Mark and Becky continue I mean this has been almost a year now they have uh, bad ears throat sinus and it's being exacerbated because of the fires in Colorado and so they're they're just really struggling. So and they got some other uh, problems that have crept up, but for the most part, that's the main issue there. And then we've been praying for Rick for two weeks. He changed his uh, open heart surgery, and he told me the twentieth, but it wasn't. It's the twenty seventh. And so our friend Rick is going in for open heart surgery on the twenty seventh. I called him on the twentieth in the morning, and he said, "No, no, it's next week." And so. Uh, Anyway, we got those prayer requests to go through, and we'll start with that, and then we'll uh, get into the class. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to just meet here, to uh, be in your presence, and to uh, share your word. And Lord, we just pray that whoever listens to this, whether it's today or, you know, 20 years from now, whenever, that uh, somebody will uh, uh, just be edified and built up in your word because of the class. And 
Lord, we would certainly pray that if there's anything wrong doctrinally, that you would alert us to that so that we would not teach something that is false or that is incorrect. And uh, you would keep anything incorrect from the ears of the people. If they hear it, that it doesn't sink into their, their minds. And Lord, we also pray for these people that we mentioned and any other issues that are out there that are harming people in their hearts or in their souls. And we just lift them up to you, and we pray that uh, you will be with them and keep them through the difficult times. And uh, Lord, we we just pray that this class will be effective in accomplishing what its purpose for us, to share the Word of God in an intelligible way. We pray this, that you will be glorified, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, we've got just a giant class here today. We've got three handsome gentlemen, and that's it. So, uh We've got to make the best of it for uh, lots of cheering from the back uh, back pews, please. Let's see here. Today is October 22nd. Okay. October 22nd. We have. I couldn't finish that one last week. I just, you know, it's, it's just such a story. If uh, As a matter of fact, the people that were visiting from Ohio went and watched the end of the six happiness they loved it they researched after the class they wanted to know what had me all broken up and they said they could understand that so uh this is a person that led her life in hollywood that you know was not a typical it was a typical hollywood life it was not the moral life that you can imagine and she ended up giving her life to christ and i'm not going to say any more than that go read about it because it breaks me up every time i think about how christ can change even hearts that are are seemingly gone. So uh, we have uh, October 22nd. Imagine a theological seminary with a faculty of one. Archibald Alexander was born to a Presbyterian family near Lexington, Virginia in 1772. At the age of 17, he became the tutor for the family of a general in the Army of the New Nation. Miss Tyler, an elderly woman in the general's home, took young Archibald under her wing. She was a Baptist who viewed Presbyterians as sound in doctrine, but often lacking the experience of spiritual rebirth. The general had hired a millwright for the mill on his plantation. One day, the millwright, who also was a Baptist, asked Archibald whether he believed that to enter the kingdom of heaven, one must be born again. Uncertain how to answer, Archibald answered yes. The millwright then asked him whether he had experienced the new birth. Archibald answered, not that I know of. Ah, said the millwright, if you have ever experienced this change, you would know something about it. The conversion got Alexander thinking. Surely the new birth was in the Bible, but he had never heard the Presbyterians he knew talk about it. Old Miss Tyler had poor eyesight and would frequently ask Alexander to read to her. Her favorite author was the Puritan writer John Flavel. When Alexander learned that Flavel was a Presbyterian, he became very interested in learning what he had to say about the new birth. On Sunday evenings, Alexander was asked to read, the, read to the whole family. On one particular Sunday night, he read the family a sermon of Flavel on Revelation 3, verse 20, where Jesus said, Behold, I stand and knock. I stand at the door and knock. As Alexander read the sermon, every word seemed to apply to him. By the time he finished, his voice was quivering with emotion. He laid down the book and ran into his room. Shutting the door, he fell to his knees and poured out his soul in prayer, inviting Jesus into his life. He had not prayed very long when he was overwhelmed by a joy that he had never experienced before. The joy was accompanied by a full assurance that if he were to die, he would go to heaven. 
giving up tutoring, Alexander went to study at a theological, uh, study theology at Liberty Hall, which is now Washington and Lee University, and entered the Presbyterian ministry. After serving as an itinerant minister on the Ohio-Virginia frontier, he became president of the Hamden Sydney College in 1796 at the age of 24. Imagine that. In 1807, Alexander became pastor of the Third Presbyterian Church of Philadelphia and moderator of the Presbyterian General Assembly. In his final address as moderator in 1808, he suggested the formation of a Presbyterian seminary in America. As a result of his leadership, Princeton Theological Seminary was founded in 1812, which is now pagan, I'm sure, yes. with Alexander as its sole faculty member for the first year. The first fall, he had three students who were joined by six more in the spring and five more during the summer. Alexander's modest home served as library, chapel, and classroom. There, the students studied and shared in his family worship. He continued teaching at Princeton Seminary until his death in October of 22nd, 1851. Archibald Alexander's heart can be seen in a prayer he penned shortly before his death. O merciful God, thou hast a perfect right to dispose of me in that manner which will most effectively promote thy glory. And I know that whatever thou dost is right and wise and just and good. And when my spirit leaves this clay tenement, Lord Jesus, receive it. Send some of the blessed angels to convey my inexperienced soul to the mansion which thy love has prepared. And oh, let me be so situated, though in the lowest rank, that I may behold thy glory. May I have an abundant entrance administered unto me into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for whose sake and in whose name I ask all these things. Amen. Archibald Alexander yearned to experience God's glorious heavenly kingdom. He became a part of that kingdom when he was born again as a youth. Have you been born again? If not, invite the Lord Jesus to come into your life and you can experience the joy of a new birth as Alexander did. Jesus replied, John 3, 3, I assure you, unless you were born again, you can never see the kingdom of God. I uh, like to tell the story. I know I've said it in this class several times. His mom used to she helped start the Episcopal Church on the key. I mean, she was in, instrumental in that. She went to church her whole life, and she's listening to the radio. Oh, I don't know, probably about 2001. It was 2001. That's, anyway, uh, she uh, had listened to Hank Rindstrom through the Bible, I think, or, or Bible, not through the Bible. It's um, any Bible something. Anyway, Hank Lindstrom up in Tampa, and she listened to him every day. And he'd say at least five times every 30 minutes that he was there, he said, you need to ask Jesus to save you. You need to have Jesus come into your life. You know, he was just, he would repeat it in one way or another. And one day she's standing there at the counter and she says, I need Jesus. I mean, she'd heard it 4,000 times, but there's a point where you suddenly realize, yeah, it sinks in. And so there it was. And uh, there she is. And uh, it's just a big change in our life. I mean, just because you go to church doesn't mean you're saved. And unfortunately, most churches don't seem to preach that. So whatever. Here we go. Um, Bible. What is the name of that Bible? I'll remember it in the middle of the class, I'm sure. Okay. We are in the book of Galatians. We're burning right through it. We're more than halfway through now. Uh, oh, well, I'm going to wait for a reason. And I'll tell you what that reason is um, uh, when we're not, when we're not um, uh, live. But uh, I will do that very soon. Okay, so we have um, uh, 
Yeah, I guess I will. I will show it. Well, no, because you you said it, and I will forget next week. Um, I took my Bible. Um, some of you saw the Bible that uh, my friend covered for me um, about a month and a half ago. He got us a Bible because I'm always wearing out Bibles. And I took my Bible uh, because it's worn out completely, but it's a beautiful Bible. It's in perfect shape, but I use it so much that the outside was all worn off. And so I said, listen, you did that one for me. And it was a wonderful birthday present. I said, I need one for my house, which I can no longer take to my house. So I have another Bible at the house, which I've got. He, uh, he, uh, I sent it to him. It's a big Bible. It's very easy to read. So we'll use this for Bible study, and we'll use the other one for the sermons on Sunday. But he, uh, he did a cover for it, and I'll show you. I don't know if you can see this from where you are here, but I'll hold it up. And it says, Holy Bible, and it's got a cross, and it says here, J-E-S-U-S. So it says, Jesus there. And then he used the Hebrew letters. This is a Samic, and this is a Tsayin, and so uh, uh, it says Holy Bible, but you wouldn't know that they're Hebrew letters, okay? And then he did the same thing on the back. He put superior word, which is why I have to keep it here. So he used a uh, Tav, a Kuf, he used a Tsayin, a Samic, a Shin, and a Samic, and yet it says superior word. It's beautiful. It's just, this is Adrian who did it, and I don't know if he watches the Bible studies. I know he's always there with the sermons, but uh, I told him this thing is just it's marvelous. It's just, oh, he's a wonderful artist. He's a wonderful, everything he does has got quality to it. And uh, so I have to keep this here because I it says superior word. And that doesn't break my heart at all because what I did is I stopped in the middle of reading this Bible and I bought a ESV. Some, somebody sent me something, a gift card so I could buy something and I decided I'll buy a Bible. And so I bought an ESV, which I've never read. I've read it, but I've never read it. And so now I'm going through the ESV. And when I get done with that, I'll get another version. But this is, this thing will last forever now. I mean, this is, look at how thick it is. Anyway, if Adrian is listening, I want to thank him with all of my heart because it smells good. It's just, oh. okay, so we're in Galatians chapter four. Um, there is a reason why I didn't want to do that, but I'm glad you did because by next week, it would have become old in my head. So, okay, here we go. We're in Galatians four, verse five. Correct. And I will jump back to the beginning of four. Yes, please. The first paragraph. And it goes as follows. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time by, set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But... When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, verse 5, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Okay, the only real difference is that we might receive the adoption as sons, which obviously would be the full rights of sons. Um, as a matter of fact, it's funny that we were talking about adoption here because I talk about adoption in Sunday sermon. Then I didn't know that this was going to come up, but Sunday sermon, I will give a point about adoption uh, when I'm making a point about something rather marvelous that's in Deuteronomy 6, uh, what is it, 15? Uh, no, 7, we're in 7, 7, 1 through 8, and it's, uh, uh, it, it's Moses is repeating a verse from the book of Exodus, but there are changes in it. There's differences in what he says, and we analyze it a little bit, and uh, I sent that, just that short analysis, maybe a page and a half to Sergio, and he really enjoyed it. And so I hope that when people see this, they'll understand that uh, it, it will 
It will enlighten you if you're one of the people that believes the church has replaced Israel, but you attend this church anyway, despite that, because most people, when they hear our view, wouldn't, you know, uh, but it, 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 it's a very convincing thing that is in the word of God. In fact, it's marvelous. And it's just a couple of words change. Let me see if I can really quickly before we, it, um, but the point is I'll talk about adoption during the uh, Sunday uh, sermon, but we'll go to Deuteronomy. I just want to see if I can find the verse, and I'll read it to you, and I'll let you think about it until we get to um, uh, Sunday sermon, and then you can uh, just decide if what you thought about was, let me see if I can chapter, find it. Chapter, uh, chapter seven. 7, and let me see if, I don't know if, uh, um, yes, verse 6, 7, 6 says, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a special a people for himself, a special people above a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. So that verse there, um, the Lord in Exodus basically says, um, for uh, if you do these things, you will be a holy nation unto me. Okay, so that's the Lord speaking to them in Exodus. And then here, Moses says, you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen uh, you to be a pe uh, people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. So if you can take those two verses, those two thoughts in your head, and uh, put them together, maybe you will be able to make some of the, the uh, deductions that I will make. But once again, the, the point was that I'm going to talk about um, uh, adoption, and it just struck me that we did that. But real quickly, I will give you the other verse, and that way you can think about those two verses, um, and what, what is the difference between them, and what does that mean as far as what the uh, Lord is trying to tell us and what Moses is telling us. Let me see if I can find this. Um, uh, let's see here. Exodus 19, verse 6. And you shall, I think this is the one that I'm looking for. 19, 6. Let me look very closely, and I could be wrong. Um, okay. 19, verses 5. This is Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me. Above all people, for the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Now, there's a difference between that and what I just read you in 7.6, Deuteronomy 7.6. So think about that. We'll talk about it on Sunday. But if you want, write those two verses down. Go read them. Don't send me an email what you think, though, because I've already got the sermon typed. Um, just compare your notes over the next couple days with what we talk about on Sunday. How's that? Um, and uh, if you get uh, the... the um, uh, sermon sent you in advance by Jim, don't read it. You're, that's, you're supposed to wait until you get it sent to you, and then when we do it on Sunday morning. So there you go with that. Okay, four or five. What? Well, I was just going to say, oh. mine had that reference in it in 196. Oh, that. did it? I wish you'd just called it out then, because no, they didn't. That's I, I what I was looking for in mine, and they didn't have it. So, okay. Um, somebody was a little more thorough than this particular Bible. Okay, so we have, I'll read the verse again, because we got diverted. To redeem those who are under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Giving the full thought of this sentence will help provide the context, so I'm going to read to you both of them. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Paul has been speaking of the purpose of giving the law and how it is not some type of replacement to the promises made to Abraham and his seed. Instead, it was given as a tutor to lead us to Christ. At the right moment, Christ came to, as he says, redeem those who were under the law. 
Redemption from the law was necessary because, as he has already shown, as many errors of works of the law are under a curse. That's verse 310. This is because one must fulfill the law perfectly, something no one is capable of doing. And we went through that in a Deuteronomy sermon about a month ago. It might have been a little less or a little more, but my question during the sermon was because the Lord said that you've been redeemed from Egypt, right? Well, if they've been redeemed, then why do they need to be redeemed? The answer is because they were redeemed from one bondage into another bondage. They were redeemed into the bondage of the law. And this was the lesson of Israel. And people are not getting this lesson. They think, oh, I'm, I'm going to put myself under the law of Moses. And I'm on and on and on. And all they are doing is they are bringing themselves into bondage. They're not freeing themselves. They're also condemning themselves if they have never come to Christ. They need to come to Christ, put away the deeds of the law, and rest in Christ's finished work. Because what can you add to what he's done? You can't add anything to it, okay? All we can do is receive it by faith. It's grace given to us. Why would we trample on that? But anyway, so there you go. Redemption from the law was necessary because as he has shown, as many errors of the works of the law are under the curse. This is because one must fulfill the law perfectly, something no one is capable of doing. Further, he showed that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for, as he says, the just shall live by faith. That's verse 311, okay? That's one of the most important verses that you can find in the New Testament, and I believe, as a matter of fact, I'm certain it is because he cites it in Romans as well. That's the verse that uh, Martin Luther realized. You know, he was a troubled soul. He was apparently like he lived in a monastery, and he'd run down 50 times a night to bother the, the chief monastery, whatever, pupa or whatever, he'd go down and he'd say, I, I had a sinful thought and I need to be forgiven. And I, I did this and I need to be, and he, he was just so scared about his, his eternal soul. And he'd go down to Rome and, he, you know, you'd got to touch this statue and you got to do this and you got to climb up these stairs on your knees and all this. And, and uh, he was just a basket case. And finally, one day somebody said, this guy's just wearing us out. We got to do something. So he handed him a Bible and he said, well, maybe this will help you. They, they never even opened the Bible. They never talked about the word of God, but they gave it to him and he read it. He got to the book of Romans and he said, the just shall live by faith. I don't need to do all of these things. I stand righteous before God because of faith in what Jesus Christ has done and it changed his life. So, and I may have abused that story. Don't use that, you know, except in a general way because I've heard the story, I've never read it, so I've heard it. that's a second hand, and then I'm, of course, paraphrasing as well. But that's the general story of Martin Luther of how he came to the Lord. So there you go. Because of this, because the just shall live by faith, no one is justified in uh, the sight of God by the law. Because of this, Christ came in order to redeem us from the power of the law and from the curse it brings. And yes, the law brings a curse. Okay, so... He explained how this was accomplished. Let me write something here really quickly. He explained how this was accomplished. Oops, apologies about this. This pen is the head of it's falling off. Okay, he explains how this was accomplished in verses 3, 13, and 14. And the reason for accomplishing this is so that we might receive the adoption as sons. This is the point of it. This is the point of coming to Christ. Getting away from the law is so that we can be adopted as sons of God. We are no longer under a, a pedagogue. We're no longer under the tutor. We're no longer under the instructor, whatever term your Bible uses. The curse. The, well, the curse, yes, it is a curse, but the law is done, and now we are, we've gone from the stage of being 
uh, in, under the schooling and we've gone to adoption of sons. We're no longer children. The logical order of what occurs is redemption from the law followed by adoption as sons into the messianic body. Christ, being the firstborn among, among many brethren, which is Romans 8, 29, the knowledge of sin and the penalty for committing sin came about through the law, through adoption, release from the power of the law, and immunity from the penalty of sin is realized. This is where the heart of theology is. I mean, we can get caught in so many types of, of distractions. You go onto YouTube and you start clicking through and looking at stuff that people say is related to the Bible, and it usually isn't. And if it is, it's some distraction. The heart of what God wants us to understand is what God has done in Jesus Christ. And the words in Galatian are, to me, the very heart of that. Also Romans. I don't want to discount Romans. Of course, you've got, like Hebrews gives you the mechanical and the technical aspects of how Christ did it. But this here, what we're looking at in the book of Galatians, is what we need to understand how God has done all of these things to bring us to the state of being sons of God. Christ tells us that, you know, you need to be born again, and he tells us certain things that need to be explained to us, and that's what Paul is doing. And it's also what John will do in his three epistles. I mean, everything is logical and orderly, and it's all one united body. So you, it just needs to be taken. But you come to the book of Galatians, and you can see the word freedom that is all the way through. And yet all he does is talk about bondage. He talks about bondage, bondage, bondage. And he's saying that that is bondage. This is freedom. It's Christ. Get away from all these things. And it's so sad to see people reject what Paul says here because Paul is saying what the Holy Spirit inspired him to say. This isn't another person that's just writing something. This is God working through this man to get us the truth of God in Christ. So I'll read that again. The logical order of what occurs is redemption from the law followed by adoption as sons into the messianic body, Christ being the firstborn among many brethren. Christ is the first, and we come in as brothers, joint heirs with Christ, Paul says in Romans, okay? The knowledge of sin and the penalty for committing sin came about through the law, through adoption, release from the power of the law, and immunity from the penalty of sin is realized. And that takes you, that one thought right there takes you all the way back to the Garden of Eden and the fact that God gave Adam a, he gave him a choice, but he gave him something, free will, free will but he gave them a, he gave, well, first he gave them a law. Oh, right. He gave them a law. He said, you can eat of any tree of the garden, but on the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. Once that law was given, the inevitable was going to come about. That's all there is to it. It was inevitable because he might have been in that garden for whether it was 30 seconds or whether it was for 30,000 years, eventually he's going to want to try that, okay? I, I, I would prefer that he did it very quickly. They, they were there long enough to understand the goodness of the garden, but I would prefer the fact that the devil knew exactly what button to push and how quickly to push it because we are, we're, we're geared that way. That's the way that God created us. And so once that happened, in came sin. And this is what Christ came to do away with. It's right here in the book of Galatians. He came to do away with these things. And people want to put themselves back under this giant body, not just one commandment, but this giant body of law, and say, I can do it without Christ. Absolutely terrible. Okay. It should be noted that being received as adopted sons implies a first-time entrance into sonship, not receiving back 
as a son. Everybody got that? You're not being brought back as a son. You were never a son before. When you were adopted into the family of God, it is the first time it's happened, and it's the only time it's ever going to happen. You are not brought back from something the way that many religions say. Oh, we're sons of God. We may be wayward, but Christ is just bringing us back to himself. That's not the case. He is bringing us back to himself, but not from a state of sons being re-brought back in. He's bringing us from a completely... That's right. In other words, oh, very good. In other words, the parable of Luke 15 concerning the prodigal son, prodigal son is not what Paul is referring to here. It is through faith in Jesus Christ that we are brought into the family of God. Adoption apart from faith in the promises of God is not possible. It is another indication that the law was unable to save. All right. Prodigal son has a completely different meaning. Here we are speaking about being adopted as sons into the body of Christ. Life application. If we had to be redeemed from the law in order to be adopted as sons, then why would we insert or reinsert deeds of the law after becoming sons? The two thoughts are contradictory. We, by faith in Christ's accomplished work, plus nothing, are saved unto eternal life. That is the glory of what God has done. Because if there's something we had to do, then we had to earn it, and it may have been some great and grandiose thing or some teeny little thing. He didn't put any burden on us at all. Not anything. Not a penny out of a million dollars. He simply said, I offer you this if you'll believe. Okay? So, I, uh, at the mall, uh, you know, I, I'm there every morning, and there's these two old people that are there every single day. I see them. Uh, they uh, uh, come from up north, and they come down half the year. Well, this year, they did not go back up north because they're so fed up with the regulations, and I don't know where they come from, uh, but it's up north, and every year I'm excited to see them. Hey, I thought you'd be back in a couple days, and here you are, and so we always have this conversation, but this year I said, you guys aren't going back? Oh, no, and then I finally found out it's because they're conservative, okay? They love the freedom in Florida. They don't want to go back up to that bondage. Well, I thought, you know, they're such nice people, and I, I just always assumed that they probably knew the Lord just because of their attitude. And this week I walked up and I said, I just got a question for you. I just need to get this resolved out of my, my own mind. I said, what's going to happen to you if you die? And his first answer was, well, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm sure I'm going to go to heaven. And I said, we need to talk. So there you go. I mean, never assume anything. Even somebody that is just as normal and right as rain. They, and these are really old people. I mean, they're really old. And they've never in their life heard that. Did you invite them here? Uh, no, I don't invite people to the church, ever. I, that's one thing, because then it becomes about the church and about me. I, other people can invite all day long. They can say, I got a church I want you to come to, and that's fine. I appreciate people doing that. There is one person that I invited to the church, and it's only because we talked about the church, and he's some Davidson. I, I grew up with him, and he was uh, something about Christmas time. I said, well, we're having a Christmas sermon, and maybe you want to come. And But other than that, I don't think I've ever invited anybody, because if I do... I can just see their attitude. He wants me to come because he's the preacher, and I'm not going to do that. I, I rely on you guys to invite your family and friends to come to the church because I just I don't think it's a pastor's position to do that. I, I don't think it's right. Um, but that's just me. I don't know if other pastors invite people to churches or not. But, um, you know, and if they, I, I will follow up with them as well. I wanted to today, but they were already leaving when I got done with my work. And uh, so I'm not going to go running after them, but I will follow up with them. And if they're interested, they'll come. They know I'm a preacher. I've known this all along. So, um, But, yeah, I don't want it to make, make it about coming to church or anything like that. So, okay, 4-6. <clears throat> because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit calls out Abba, 
Okay, now it's a little different. That one said our hearts. I'll read it and just compare. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Now, I do not know what the Greek says. It's our or your, I don't know. So I would have to check that, and I'm not going to do it right now. But that's a really big difference there. It it's, that's a, that one word is a big difference in the, uh, the context. So anyway, as noted in 4.5, the logical order is redemption and then adoption. For those who have been redeemed, God includes them in his family. Good stuff there. What would be the purpose of redeeming a person and then leaving them under the very law that they were redeemed from? Instead, we are adopted as sons into a new economy. This is Paul's logical argument to the Galatians. And because we're adopted, something wonderful is the result. He says, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts. The word because indicates a result. One thing logically follows after another. As sons, the logical result is that we receive the Spirit of Christ into our hearts. Christ is the Son of God. He was able to lovingly call out to his Father as a son. Now, because we are adopted as sons, we too are enabled to call out in this same filial manner. Okay, now really quickly, I'm going to do something here. I'm going to dispel something that it annoys me to no end. I've had people actually no longer be my friend because of it. And that doesn't bother me at all if they're going to argue over something like this and argue incorrectly. We read in our uh, Christian history today, the guy said that, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Okay, what's the next part of that verse? Well, we just covered it the other day in the, uh, in the daily, daily commentary. Right. Okay. I will come in and have fellowship okay. with you. Okay, yes, that, that, that's you. correct. Okay. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Okay. I have people that will send me tracts, and they say, you, you need to not hand out tracts that say Christ is knocking on the door of your heart because that's not biblical. It doesn't say that. And I say, it doesn't say it. It doesn't have to say it. The Bible says it. It says it right here in Galatians. We just saw that. It says it in the gospel, Romans 10, 9 and 10. For if you believe with your heart, okay, the idea is that our heart is calloused. It is closed. Now, the heart in the Bible is the seat of reasoning. That's what the, it's not the, the seat of emotions, okay? That's what we in the world uh, today. today think of the heart. That's, you know, I love my wife and that's in my heart, Okay. The, the heart in the Bible is the seat of reasoning. It's the seat of intellect and understanding. Go through the Bible. That's, that's right. Okay. So your heart is what is making the acknowledgement. Where else is Christ going to knock? Okay. And in that particular verse, it is very specific. He goes to the singular. If anyone, he's not saying to the church. Now, and people will get that wrong as well. They'll send me a verse and they'll say, well, you can see you can lose your salvation because Christ is going to take your lampstand away. Speaking to the church in that verse, there are times where he goes down and he says anyone or any person. He gets down into the singular and the, it, the directive changes from the church to the person, okay? So you have to be careful with revelation. But I've had people actually say that's a heresy or it's some stupid thing like that about Christ knocking on the door of your heart. It's poetic. It's sermon-type material. And it's not unbiblical, and it is not incorrect, as Paul says. Let's read it again right here. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, 
okay, crying out, Abba, Father. Well, how did that happen? It's because Christ was appealing to you as an individual, and where does he appeal? Your heart. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, okay? Your heart is what that's speaking of. So when somebody says poetically, Christ is not, or you have a tract that says that, then somebody tells you that's not biblical, tell them to get off the semantics. I can't stand when people get into semantics over things that are, one, clear and obvious if you take other verses in the proper context, but at the same time, they want to niggle over little things. They want to tear people apart, and they want to say that you are are not obedient to the Word of God because of something as minor as that. If all those things were followed, nothing. Nothing would ever be said. Nothing would ever be said. It, you know, and sometimes you're just talking, and you're not giving a theological expose. You're in the pulpit, and you're finishing up the day, and you say something, and somebody will come and send you a nasty email about something you said, which was proper. It wasn't anything off. It's just, you know, maybe not a biblical term. And all of a sudden, they go crazy on it. Please don't do that to people. And I'm not talking about Charlie Garrett. I'm talking about to anybody. If something is not unbiblical and it presents something that is proper from a greater context, let it go. Okay? There are other things that we can take apart, you know, in, uh, what do you call it, tracts and stuff. There are certain things that should never be in a tract. There are some things that just don't matter. Okay? So be, be less... Uh, finger pointy in your theology. I'm not talking to anybody in particular. I'm just talking in general. There might not be a single person that ever listens to this class that this pertains to. Okay, I'm just making a general point that I've had people actually email me about that, and you know, then they get arguing and they get they're better than you because they don't say Christ is knocking on the door of your heart, and they say I'm never talking to you again. Okay, you know, if, if that's yeah, there you go. That's a good way of saying it. Okay, so here we are. Um, We've done that. The uh, logical order is redemption and adoption. Okay. Um, he says, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts. The word because, as I said, indicates a result. One thing logically follows after another. Okay. So we'll go down here a bit. It says, does this mean that we will be free from life's trials? God has brought us into the family. Are we? Free? No. And, you know, a lot of people will give that false assumption when they're presenting Christianity. And so people come into the fold and they have really difficult times. They have, you know, medical problems. and everything. You know, before I go on, uh, that exact issue, I went down to the pizza place to talk to them today. Okay, very nice people. And I, they asked me, give me a report on the pizza that, remember we had it three or four weeks ago? I said, this is the first day I've had free where I could come down and give you a report. And, uh, uh, and it's because I went to Ohio and then we've had guests and I've been full every single day since then so i walked down there today to tell them about their people they're nice people and they're conservative i didn't know that anyway um uh what was oh we were talking about going to the projects you know they were just i had an hour to waste and so i'm telling about the projects and um i told them about i won't say his name now but the the guy that used to be schizophrenic and his daughter that okay and i said they literally were healed completely of their mental problems by the Lord, and they couldn't believe it. And I said, I want you to know, I'm not one ever to listen to these people on TV that claim healing or that, that I said, the Lord will heal if he wants to, and if he doesn't want to, we have people in the church that are sick and we've had them die, okay? That's the Lord's choice. He's gonna call somebody home when he, when he wants, but I will not deny that those two people were healed completely of their mental problems, completely, all right? They, so uh, the point that I was going to make was, does this mean that we will be free from life's trials? The answer is no, because even though they were healed, these people that are in the projects, and we see them every Saturday of our life, 
okay? They were healed of real mental problems that quickly, okay? The Lord did this for them, and yet they still have other trials. You know, they've, they've got things going on in their life right now that are, aren't right. They've got things that come into their family that cause trouble and trial, okay? Just because the Lord favors you in one way does not put you on an, a, a, you know, a pedestal and elevate you where you're not going to be down here in another way, okay? So we don't want to ever elevate people because, oh, he's a super spiritual faith healer, right? That's not the attitude. The Lord is the healer. We pray and he will heal if he chooses. And if he does not, we have to live with those afflictions. That was my point about this. Does this mean that we will be free from life's trials? Does this mean that we will be kept from harm, sadness, or pain? The answer to these questions is no. What does it mean that we can come to God in good? What it does mean? is that we can come to God in good times or bad with the same courage and the same hope as Christ did. No matter what we face, we know that the will of our Heavenly Father is what is right and what is appropriate. If we are married to the most wonderful person in the world, we love him or her more than anything on this planet except for Christ, he may test us and take that person from us. Okay? That is his choice. That is his choice. We have to abide by what the Lord calls into our life, whether it's cancer or whether it's a life, you know, living to 90 and dying in your sleep. We don't know. But whatever happens, we need to put him first. And we need to understand that just because we are Christians does not mean that we might not go to our own cross someday. We don't know. Just keep your faith in Christ. You know, I try to end every email or letter that I send out to somebody with either be uplifted in Christ or be encouraged in Christ. I try to always say that because people need to understand that he is where our hope is to be. Not in ourselves, not in the bank account, not in the whatever. Be encouraged in Christ. Okay, Um, so uh, no matter what we face, we know that the will of our Heavenly Father is what is right and what is appropriate. The only time Jesus is recorded as having called out Abba, Father, was during the darkest moment of his life. That's seen in the book of Mark. Let me take you there and I'll read you what it says there. Mark chapter 14, one page back, and verse 36. Uh, Oh, that's a long chapter. Let's see our, yeah, long chapter, 36. He says, okay, I'll just start at 31. But he spoke more vehemently, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. So here he's telling us we can cry out, Abba, Father. And we think that that's the most wonderful thing in the world. It is even in our affliction, because then we're emulating Christ. Like Christ, who shortly after his words to God was beaten and nailed to the cross, we too can have the same courage, resolve, and determination that no matter what occurs, our Heavenly Father is with us in it. He's our adopted Father. We too can cry out, Abba, Father, in both times of joy and in times of great agony. We have a right and the honor to pour out our hearts to him. The word crying that Paul uses here is the word kratzo. It is an onomatopoetic term for raven's piercing cry, the caw, 
Okay, kratzo, kratzo, okay? Figuratively, it means cry out loudly with an urgent scream or shriek using inarticulate shouts that express deep emotion, like somebody's just wailing. That would be a kratzo. That's helps word studies. That's not my evaluation. That's theirs. Okay, when we have emotions so deeply confined in our souls that no words can properly express them, it is the Spirit of Christ which calls out for us to his Father on our behalf. He suffered the same and worse than we suffer. He has been exalted to the levels higher than we can know. In all ways, he is able to empathize with our situation and to call out on our behalf for us. This is the idea of what Paul is saying. And tying this together, we can see the full meaning of what is occurring from Romans chapter 8. Take you there, Romans chapter 8. And in verse, we'll start at 12, but 14 and 15 is where we'll end up. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. <clears throat> 14, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. There you go. Paul's always very consistent in what he says. Always. That's because he's inspired by the Spirit of God, and he will never contradict himself. Um, you know, that's another thing. I was talking to some people about theology uh, over the past week, and, and uh, you know, they're talking about the charismatic churches, and they will do things in there that do not adhere to the Word of God. And they know, just, you know, as I've said in this class myself, that if it doesn't match the Word of God— and they're doing it in the church, then it cannot be of the Spirit of God. It cannot be. You know, so when you go to a church, and if they're doing something, and they're claiming this is by the Spirit of God, and it doesn't match this. Example, you know, people speaking in tongues. I think that was what we were talking about. And there's somebody speaking in tongues, and nobody's translating it. It's not of God. If it's not of God, then what is it? It's of the devil. And that's, there's only two options in that, okay? If you are have more than three people speaking in tongues in a church, and there's no translator, it's not of God. I'm sorry, the Spirit will never contradict what he says in his word. If you believe that he would, then you're on very shaky foundation as far as being a believer, okay? Just always understand that what the word of God says is from the Spirit. Nothing will ever contradict it. This is a, a precious, precious thing we've been given. It is we who cry actually, but it is the Spirit of Christ who carries our cry to our Heavenly Father. He is the one who makes this wondrous display of sonship to the God of the universe possible. Life application, God no less hears our cries to him than he hears the cries of Christ Jesus there in the Garden of Gethsemane. We are his sons through adoption, and no petition of ours is unheard. Christ asked his Father to have that cup taken from him. And it did not happen. Does that mean that God didn't love him? Absolutely not. It was God's will that he would suffer through that. So when we say, when people email and they say, listen, I'm, I'm praying to God and it's not happening. I'm having the same troubles. I'm having the same trials and it's not going away. Rejoice. Okay, God wants you to have those trials. If you are his son and you are truly saved and you are not getting the answer that you want, because Jesus Christ did not get the answer that he wanted in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, not my will, but yours be done. 
God the Father wanted him to go through with it, and he went through with it. And I understand that life is cruel at times, and it's, it's punishing, and I go through it too. We all, I'm sure everybody sitting here does. So we have these trials, but when we have them, if they're not being answered, then we're supposed to go through them. That is what God has ordained for you, okay? Just praise God through the storm, and he will get you to a very happy end someday. Okay, be comforted in this as you walk through this world of both joys and trials, okay? 4-7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. Since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Okay, little different. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. Sounds the same. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So a little bit different there. Okay. Uh, therefore is based on the fact that God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts. That's what Paul said in the previous verse. Because of this fact, a change has taken place in each one of us. This is made poignant now because Paul switches from the second person plural, you all, of the previous verse, to the second person singular in this verse, you as an individual. These are important changes. Now, the King James Version, I'll give it credit where credit is due. It, if you know how to read Old English, you will see the changes from the second person singular to the second person plural or vice versa, whatever. Okay, most people do not understand that in today's society. Thou, thee, thy, which the King James Version will use, and then they go you and ye. Okay, do you all know the differences in all those? Because if you don't, you're not reading the Bible any more appropriately. And that's why it would be nice if they would, in a Bible translation someday, in a modern Bible translation that doesn't use all of those old words, say you and put all in the parentheses. And that way you know it's second person plural. If they would do that, that would help people with their theology and it would help them understand what Paul or whatever author, Moses does this a lot. If you watch the Deuteronomy sermons, you're seeing this. He will change from going second person plural all the way through and stop for one part of one verse and go to the singular and then go plural again, or vice versa. He'll do that, and there's a reason why he does these things, and it's not an error, according, uh, if you read the uh, scholars at Cambridge, they say, well, this is obviously an error, or a later insert. Listen, if it was a later insert, the last thing they would do would be change from second person singular to plural for one clause and then change back. They would never do that. They would be consistent. This is done for a reason, okay? But real quickly, if you grew up in a home like I did where our heritage was Quaker, you'll understand a lot of those differences because my grandparents especially would say thee, thy, thou, and you knew what was going on. Now that they're dead and my mom and dad, dad used to speak that way and he doesn't anymore, okay? But growing up, I would know the difference between these things and now it's like any other language thing. You lose very quickly. I don't know what the thy and thou is. I, if it's, you know, I don't know. But if you're reading the King James Version and you know those things, or the Geneva Bible, or Young's Literal Translation, or even the NAS, the New American Standard, before it became the NASB, they use the the thy, thou, etc. Okay. And it, if you know how to read that, you will get what other people are not getting. So someday I hope somebody will make a translation and they'll say here, you all instead of just you. But we'll go back and we'll read this again just so you remember what I just said. Therefore, it's based... Jesus would be in Southern if I know, y'all. Oh yeah, y'all, y'all, yeah. Okay, therefore, it's based on the fact that God has sent forth his spirit into, of his son into your hearts, okay? Because of this fact, a change has taken place in each one of us, Okay. This is made more poignant now because Paul switches from the second person plural, you all, 
or y'all of the previous verse to the second person singular in this verse, you as an individual. Thus, he is making this a personal statement to each recipient of the letter. As you have received the spirit of his son, you, Paul, he's saying this, you are no longer a slave, but a son. A change has taken place. We go from a state of bondage, which is verse 4-3. Even so, when we were children, even so, when we were children, meaning under the law, we were in bondage under the elements of the world, okay? Two, from that, we've gone from that state of bondage to a state of freedom. We are no longer under the yoke of the law, but we have full rights within the house. This doesn't just mean that we can now participate in the family life God has prepared, but that it is an eternal inheritance. This is evidenced by the finishing words, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Once again, eternal salvation is what is taught in this book. If you don't believe in eternal salvation, you're reading the wrong book, or you're reading the right book wrong. Those are the only two options, because eternal salvation is what the Bible teaches. As God is eternal, and we are heirs of God, then we have been granted his same eternality. Let me take you to the book of Hebrews really quickly. And in verse 9, let me see if I'm going to go back a little bit. Yeah, I'm just going to start with 11, and we're going to get down to 15. We're going to read the whole paragraph. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Here it is. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. You were brought out of the law if you were under the law. You were brought into the new covenant apart from the law. Either way, you are not being imputed sin. 2 Corinthians 5.19 if you're not being imputed sin, you cannot lose your salvation, and thus it is an eternal inheritance, because the wages of sin is death. If you're not being imputed sin, I don't care what you do, you will not lose your salvation. You will lose rewards, you may lose your life, and you may go to prison for the rest of your life. Those are your choices. You will not lose what God has granted you. All right? Two terms were in there. Yes. Had, uh, one that uh, dead works. Dead works. Is that Suggesting back under the law. Under the law, okay. absolutely. Dead works. They don't save anything. Right. They, right. They're works that do nothing. And then the other one, that's in, that's in uh, New King James Version. Yes. Right there. Okay. Um, the King James Version does not use covenant. In the use Testament. Yeah. yeah, and it's not. You know, somebody asked me about that recently. I don't remember who, but we were talking about that. There's a difference between Testament and covenant. The New King James Version makes an error a couple times when they say Testament. Okay. This is a testament. We're going to stop right here. And just, just so that I'm glad you brought that up because people get confused about this. I can't remember who was it. Somebody sent me this and, and uh, it, it's, it is a big deal. It's an important deal. But this is a testament. 
And this is a testament. You have an Old Testament and you have a New Testament. But guess what? Parts of the New Testament are under the Old, Old Covenant. Right. Matthew, Mark, and Luke especially. John is too, but it's got a different purpose. The Synoptic Gospels are Christ living out his life under the Old Covenant. He is fulfilling the Mosaic Covenant, and that is what is being displayed there. Once again, John is too, but we'll talk about that some other time. It's got a different purpose than the Synoptic Gospels. That is the Old Covenant. A covenant is something that God cuts with man. It's called cutting a covenant. We'll talk about that on Sunday as well. What? It's an agreement. It's an agreement. It can it's be one-sided from the Lord to the people. It can be the people agreeing to it. and then, But the conditions are all on the people, such as the Mosaic Covenant. They agreed to it. Okay, the mo now the covenant with God in uh, Abraham is different. God made a promise to Abraham. Abraham did nothing. He simply believed by faith and it was done. And then God went through the pieces of the animals and he confirmed that this will never change ever. This will never change. And I am putting myself on the line. These animals that are laying in pieces on either side, that is my testament that this will never end. Okay, now the the Mosaic Covenant is a little bit different. The Mosaic Covenant was something that was offered to the people. They agreed to it. They accepted it with their own mouths. They accepted uh, the terms of it, and then the, the covenant was ratified. This is the blood of the covenant. Moses did that. And of course, 15 minutes later, while Moses was getting the rest of it, they're down there making the golden calf. Okay, So the covenant was broken. It was symbolized by the breaking of the Ten Commandments. And so Moses went, he petitioned them for another 40 days, etc. And he came down with new tablets. And all of that is to make pictures of Christ. The old tablets were made by who? Who made the tablets of the first set of Ten Commandments? The Lord did. The Lord did. Who made the second tablets? Moses. Moses. Make second tablets like the first and bring them up. Why is that? We'll talk about that in just a Deuteronomy, uh, I think it's chapter 9. Yes, it is chapter 9. We're going to get into that, and we'll see that in a couple of weeks. But that's making a picture of Christ, okay? But you have the Old Covenant, you've got the New Covenant, all right? So, anyway. Um, a testament is not a legal... No, term. a testament is something that says this is... Uh, it, it's. Uh, go ahead, what were you going to well, say? It's like it, you're testifying. It's that's just, right. It's just words... That make up topic. a body of something. That's correct. You have not, an Old Testament. Not it's not a covenant. That's right. So you need to be careful when you see the word testament if it is translated that way in the New Testament because it normally means a covenant, not a testament. There's, there's a difference. So be careful with that. But we're dealing with covenants here. We're dealing with the Old Covenant. We're dealing with the New Covenant. The New Covenant, there is no imputation of sin. 2 Corinthians 5.19. Okay, so um, where are we? Um, if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. As God is eternal, I'm going to read this again so you remember that. As God is eternal and we are heirs of God, then we have been granted his same eternality, Hebrews 9.15 that we just read. We have an inheritance which is incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away reserved in heaven. That's 1 Peter 1.4, okay? And it's the same covenant. Jew and Gentile, it's the same covenant. Now, I'm going to talk about this again on Sunday when we get back into Deuteronomy, is that Israel as a collective body is different than Israel as an individual. Any Jew can be saved in exactly the same way that any Gentile is saved today, and they come under the new covenant, the covenant which is in Christ. We as Gentiles are grafted into it, okay? Israel as a nation, and this is the point that I'm going to make, what we talked about earlier in the class, will come as a nation under the new covenant someday. 
Daniel 9, 24 through 27 tells us the timeline. It gives us that, and it says that it's going to happen, and then Jesus confirms it with his own words in Matthew 23, when he says, how I've longed to gather you as a hen gathers its chick on her wings, but you are not willing. See, I, your house has left you desolate. I say you. And he's speaking to the body of the nation, Jerusalem, the corporate government, the headquarters, the big guys, saying, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's not coming back. I, you shall not see me again until you say, Baruch HaBashem Adonai. Till that happens, corporate Israel will not see the salvation that each individual Israel can see. That's Israel, the nation, has to be taken very carefully. And like I said, we'll talk about that on Sunday. But um, Vincent's Word Studies notes following concerning this inheritance that we've been talking about. The figure is based upon Roman, not upon Jewish law. According to Roman law, all the children, sons and daughters, inherited alike. According to Jewish law, the inheritance of the sons was unequal. Remember that, because the first son gets a double portion, and daughters were excluded, except where there was no male heirs. We saw that in the story of who? Anybody remember their names? The daughters of Zelophehad. Remember that? Noah, Hogla, Tirza, um, Milka, and uh, Noah, Hogla, Tirza, Milka. I'm forgetting one of them. Sorry about that. Anyway, that was last year or two years ago. So anyway, um, but if there is an exception, but then even that exception of those daughters, remember that the land inheritance said that they had to marry within the tribe because if they married outside of the tribe, when the year of Jubilee came, the land would transfer to the other tribe and they couldn't allow that because it was designated to the tribe. And so the Lord did all picture in Christ again, all of the work of Christ in those why do you think that those girls are brought up like three times in numbers? They're brought up again in the book of Joshua. We're going to see them. You see them in two Chronicles, and it's always in relation to their father. The inheritance has to be maintained. Anyway, um, let's see here. So uh, where was I? Okay, read that again. The figure is based upon Roman, not upon Jewish law. According to Roman law, all the children, sons and daughters inherited alike. According to Jewish law, the inheritance of the sons was unequal, and the daughters were excluded except where there were no male heirs. Thus, the Roman law furnished a more truthful illustration of the privileges of Christians. This is especially evident from Galatians 3, 26 through 28, which said, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew... Now, remember, we went through this two weeks ago, and we have to be careful. There are distinctions, but there is no differences, okay? There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That is positionally in Christ, and it has nothing to do with the distinctions. Jews are Jews, and they will always be Jews. Gentiles are Gentiles, and they will always be Gentiles. Women do not become men when they come into the new covenant in Christ. They remain women. Slaves, if they are slaves, remain slaves unless the slave master frees them, okay? Which is what Paul appealed to for Philemon or from Philemon for Onesimus, okay? So we have to keep our categories straight. There are no differences in our position in Christ, but there are distinctions of who we are in Christ. It's important because if not, then we have real contradictions in Scripture. Life application, and we'll take uh, just a second before we read our life application. Where are you from, sir? Sarasota. Oh, okay. How do you find out about us? Well, uh, I listen to John Heller. Oh, okay. Yeah, he's been down here, and I went up to visit him a few weeks ago. But uh, I, I, 
noticed this uh, Spurrier word many years before my own. Oh, okay. So one day I'd like to stop in there. Then later on, I heard John Heller. Oh, okay. He had visited here. Oh, yes. I said, gee, I always wanted to visit that myself. But I, I listened to that. Quite often. He's a good guy. He's a, he's a nice guy. And I got a little time after uh, the church. Uh, you know, I talked to him before yeah. going to the church on Sunday, but I got some time with him, uh, yeah. you know, for lunch. And it was a good time. He's he's a really smart guy. You don't want to try to, uh, you know, uh, yeah, you're not going to outdo that brain. He's, I mean, on the matters, he's smart in. He's a lawyer and he knows things that are, you know, from that perspective. And he's he's a really good guy. So yeah, there you go. one foot in the world between the law. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Very good. Very analytical. Oh, yeah. He he would be the one to do, or even the guys that were here last week, because they're both lawyers, and they could have easily said that. Okay, we're streaming, so I got to get back because they can't hear you guys speaking, and I don't. So I apologize for that online, but we had somebody walk in, and I wanted to make sure he wasn't, you know. Uh, uh, yeah, it got to be hospitable. Okay, here we go. Life application for uh, Galatians four seven, and we'll move on. We got time for. I, we're going to have to close a little early today, probably 6.20, because we started a little early so that Sergio could get the uh, the, the streaming going, the YouTube, because uh, there's been problems. So, uh, life application. The overall intent of Paul's words should not be overlooked in the analysis of each clause. He's constantly making a contrast between the bondage of the law and the freedom of God, which is found in Christ. For those who fail to trust Christ alone for their salvation they remain in bondage. They have failed the test and they remain bound as slaves. They have not become sons of God. So be sure to evaluate yourself. Are you still attempting to be justified by deeds of the law? Because if you are, you are only condemning yourself. Now, once again, make sure you got the categories right. There may have been somebody that was saved in a church. They believed the gospel and then they started following the Hebrew roots movement. They are not going to lose that salvation, but their children may never be saved. The people that they talk to and bring to their church may never come to a saving knowledge of Christ because they are not believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is freedom from the law. He died for our sins. The law can't take care of that. He was buried and he was raised again. That is the gospel of our salvation. Romans 10, 9 and 10 is how you appropriate it. Okay, from that moment, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, which is the deposit. It's the guarantee of the future redemption of the purchased possession. So those are the things that we have to make sure we understand is that going back under the law for somebody that should not be under the law, if they're saved, is only going to fall under rewards and losses. But the people that follow them are the ones that will suffer. So get me, you know, and it's hard to talk to somebody that's stuck in that. You know that because you've been debating them with that. But once you have it in your head that I can do better than Christ did on the cross, you're, you're going to spend the rest of your life trying to prove that fact. It's a very sad place to be. Be sure to evaluate yourself. Are you still attempting to be justified by deeds of the law? If so, you are not a true son of God. Okay, we're in 4.8. Formally, when, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not God. Okay, it, it kind of scared me when you said formally because they used a completely different beginning. Usually it's just a, a little bit different preposition, but here. But then, indeed, when you did not go, know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. They recouped and they're very close at the end. But the first word, I thought, what verse are you reading? Formally and but then. I mean, that's, okay, here we go. Um, Paul, addressing the Galatians, specifically says you rather than we. And the verb is plural. It gives them a contrast to what he has just said concerning their being sons of God and heirs of God through Christ. 
Before that time, they did not know God. That's Paul's words there. They did not know God. As I said, we are not re-brought into the family of God. We are adopted for the first time into the family of God. There is no coming back to God, as you know, most religions and many Christian denominations will say. We are brought into the family of God through Christ. At that time, there was no knowledge of the true God and how to serve him properly. Uh, before I go on, I'll let you know, I read from my notes. What I do is I've written a commentary on the New Testament, okay, and verse by verse. And so if you see me reading, it's because I just take the commentary and I read it because some people don't want to read. You know, it, it gets a little tedious when, but if somebody sends me an email and says, well, what about this? I send them my commentary because it's just easier than trying to re-explain something I've already done. But that's why I'm reading from this. So um, like people from any pagan culture, some may have the knowledge there was a God who created all things. As a matter of fact, it's almost universal. It has to kind of be trained out of you. But they only had the knowledge from general revelation. They had no specific knowledge of him as the Jews did. For the most part, such people served those which by nature are not gods. You can see that in Acts chapter 17. They have so many gods here and there and everywhere, and they even have one to the unknown God. Exactly. So, um, for the most part, such people serve those which by nature are not gods. In an attempt to either be reconciled to the God they were sure existed, or to appease the gods, plural, they thought controlled their lives and destiny, they served idols. That's Paul's point there. They're out there serving idols. All right? But... Um, Pagan culture, I had a point that I wanted to go back and it went out of my brain. Let me think about this for just a second. Some, uh, oh yeah, you know, what I said in the first sentence, like all people from any pagan culture, some may have known there was a God who created all things, but they only had the knowledge from general revelation. Jehovah, the God of Israel, specifically revealed himself to Israel. The rest of the nations of the world did not have that, okay? But the people of the world could come very close to an understanding of God if they applied their brains. And most people, you know, we don't want to apply our brains. We, we may be a doctor, and that's where we focus all of our attention. We don't have the mental energy to focus on something else. We all have something that occupies us, and some people just don't want to think at all. Um, anyway, I was going to make a joke, but I won't right now. Um, uh, the, the elections are coming soon. Anyway, having said that, Aristotle was a man. And he was a philosopher. He was a thinker, okay? Aristotle was able to think about the nature of the divine so closely to the God of Scripture that it is unbelievable because that's what he did. Like I said, a doctor is thinking doctor stuff. He doesn't have time to think of other things. Aristotle and the people, he built on, uh, obviously, the works of Plato and Socrates, but he was able to understand the nature of God. And I've said this, and I've had people actually accuse me of saying, well, you know, that's, you know, he's teaching something wrong because the Bible explains itself. And it's true. The Bible does explain itself. We can know about God from the Bible. We can know the Trinity from the Bible, something Aristotle could not deduce. But why do you think that God introduced Jesus at the time that he introduced him? It's because they had roads going all over the world. They had a united language, which was very precise for the theology that was necessary it was the Greek language. As a matter of fact, it was so important that God had the Greek translation of the Old Testament ready for Christ's coming so that that precision could be understood from the Old Testament as well. And then they had the work of these people, the, the mental work of them understanding the nature of God, what he is like, not the triune nature, 
but I'm talking about what God is like in his being so that when he came, all of that could come together. And how do we know that's true? It's because Paul also cited those Greek philosophers. He does it in Acts 17. He does it in the book of Titus. These people had said things that were true, and he wasn't afraid of quoting them. And I'm not saying that that's an end to itself, and we can go down that path and find salvation. We cannot. But when, when Aristotle said that God is pure act, that means pure actuality, he has no potential, he is 100% right, and the Bible supports that. I, the Lord your God, do not change. When you hear that, from the Bible, you're not thinking that God is pure act. It took Aristotle understanding that and explaining it so that we can grasp what I, the Lord your God, do not change means. An angel is an uh, uh, eternal being. It had a beginning, but it has no end, okay? It is also fully actuated potential. There is no potential left for angels. They're spirit beings, and everything about them is, okay? We wouldn't have known that without the Greeks. The Bible bears it out but you wouldn't have figured it out without the minds of these people. People are progressively actuating potential. My beard can grow longer. My beard can turn grayer, okay? My skin can fall off. I can get it burnt. That chair can be reupholstered. Everything in the physical world is progressively actuating potential, okay? So when I say something like this, it's important to understand that God has revealed himself in the general nature Everything that we see, and without that God, we can, without that general revelation, we can know about that God. But without special revelation, meaning this book right here, we can never come to a saving knowledge of God. We can never understand the plan of redemption of Jesus Christ. As Paul says, um, uh, mind is not conceived, nor, you know, the verse I'm talking of. That's not speaking of heaven. That's speaking of the church. Nobody could have figured what God was going to do in Christ by coming out with the church. It's looking back to the previous verses. It's not looking forward to, uh, you know, uh, you know the verse I'm speaking of. Mind is not seen, nor tongue can, can you know, what heard. ear not heard. That's right. That is speaking of what God has done in Christ in bringing Jew and Gentile into the fold and establishing the church. But the things of God that are important to understand about his nature, actually, we can deduce apart from the Bible. And it's a very good place to go because it will help you understand the Bible in a way you may not have done before. I'm not saying to do that and spend a lot of time in that. This is where we spend our time. But if you take some, some courses on proper understanding of the nature of God, Norman Geisler is the person I would go to. He's dead now, but you can read his works. He is the most famous or the, the most uh, intellectual Thomistic theologian in the world. And the Catholics hate him because of it, because Thomas Aquinas was a Catholic back in the 1300s. Okay, But what he wrote about the nature of God built upon Aristotle. And he so appreciated the works of Aristotle that when he disagreed with them, he would always go around about. He would never openly disagree with Aristotle. He called him the teacher and put him a capital T because understanding the nature of God in Christian theology is dependent on what we can know from the Greek culture and languages. And I'm not talking about not, the Bible isn't sufficient. So please don't think that that's what I'm saying. And people have thought that I've made that statement before. The Bible is completely sufficient. But having their knowledge and using it, we will understand the Bible more quickly and more efficiently, is what I would say. You can get all of it without it, but it's a long haul because those people thought of all of that stuff 2,500 years ago, okay? And they did it apart from the covenant of Christ. So here we go. I just wanted to get that out of the way. I'll read it again so you understand why I brought that in. He brought Paul's brain in to write all of that. That's right. That's, that's exactly right. Like, 
People from any pagan culture, some may have known there was a God who created all things. Aristotle deduced that. He understood what this creator was like. There's no potential in God at all. God does not get angry. He does not laugh. He doesn't, there's, he is impassionate, okay? But he revealed the son who is. God can't cry. Christ can cry. God can't learn anything. It says that Christ uh, grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. There was a reason why God did this in the stream of time and in the incarnation is so that we could have this relationship. Okay, so he created all things, but they only had the knowledge from general revelation. It can never save. They had no specific knowledge of him. The prophets were uh, special revelation. The uh, Bible is special revelation. Jesus Christ is special revelation par excellence. He is the epitome of special revelation. Okay, um, uh, the Jews did have that. For the most part, such people served those by which nature are not gods. In an attempt to either be reconciled to the God they were sure to existed or to appease the gods they thought controlled their lives and destiny, they served idols. And we see this all over the world today. We see it all over. We see it in Sarasota. People going and buying idols and praying to them. And it, it happens because people are trying to make a connection with the God they know exists. They just need to be directed to Jesus. They become slaves to these false gods. They were under a type of bondage to them in that they felt obligated to them through sacrifices, rites, gifts, and so on. When they heard and received the gospel of God's grace in Christ, they were freed from these things. They were no longer under bondage, but liberated to serve the true God as sons with the promise of a full inheritance. From this thought of where they were and where they had now come to in Christ, Paul will next show where they were heading because of the lies of the Judaizers, or call them Hebrew Roots Movement today. You'll know exactly where they're heading because Paul lays it out. He is making a logical defense against the insertion of the law of Moses into their lives by showing them where they had been in their own lives. Life application. Do we have time for one more? Let me see here. Give me a second. Um, I don't think we're going to have time to do all that. Um, life application. We all started somewhere in our walk towards the true faith in Christ. Some of us were raised in Christian homes and our walk was shortened to direct right to the throne of grace. Others, others of us traveled long roads of false worship, finally ending at that same marvelous spot, the throne of grace. However we came to him, we were freed from the ineffective types of worship that permeate both the law and the misdirected worship of false religions. Only in Jesus Christ is the true and free expression of worshiping God realized. Why would we want to give up on that and return to something less than what Christ offers? Why would we do it? Let me make a circle here. And I, I know that it's a little shorter than normal, but if I go any longer, we're going to go over the hour and a half. And then the, the web guy is going to have extra work to do. And I do not want to do that to him because this is the most faithful guy. I don't think he listens to the Bible studies because he's this guy, uh, he's up in New Jersey. And all I know him is his Mike, and it's not his real name. He won't give me anything about himself because this is his ministry. And he reads every single thing that I do every day, the poor guy. And he checks for all the errors and all of the typos. You know, it's hard to find your own typos. And sometimes I make, uh, you know, uh, uh, categorical mistakes in my head. You'll type Peter and you mean Paul, or you'll type square and you mean round. And he catches those things for me. And uh, I don't want to put more burden on him. As soon as I get home, if, this is, if the streaming works, I don't have to edit the uh, hard copy, then Mike will uh, 
uh, have it up on a podcast within minutes, literally minutes. And he always sends it to me. How does it sound? Is it okay? It's such a it's such a wonder to have people like that in your lives because you know, I didn't ask him. He just said, let's do this. He did it back when we were on the beach 10 years ago. And he's been doing this every single day for over 10 years. What a marvelous person. And someday I'll get to thank him properly because he won't give me an address to send him anything. And, uh, you know, he just it's just so wonderful to have people like that in your life. So uh, we better close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your precious word. Thank you for the gift which you have given us, divinely inspired through men of God and who have given us this revelation, this special revelation of who Jesus Christ is and what you have done in the stream of human existence to bring us back to yourselves. And we're so thankful for that. We're so thankful for the grace that was offered to us and that that uh, we were just smart enough in whatever way we can say that to have received it, the grace given to us. We thank you for it. And Lord, we certainly lift up the people that were at the beginning of this uh, class mentioned who are going through some physical trials, some uh, you know, worldly trials, and uh, also our friend Rick, who's having his open heart surgery coming up, and uh, also Tom Alley, who's still in Indiana. I don't know when he's going to be back, but he uh, uh, he's taking care of his own family while he's suffering through his own cancer, and so it's got to be a tough time on him, and we lift him up, Lord, and we ask that you just bless him in his heart and, and give him the uh, ability to take care of those wonderful uh, family members of his and uh, bring us, bring him back to us safely soon as well. And Lord, we love you, how good you are to us, and how we praise you for your goodness. And we thank you, and we do praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, let me back this thing up. Susan, too. <laughs> yeah, I didn't abuse.